been able to see what happened over the last 10 years and the value that is created in the private markets where management teams have time to really do major transformations. The strongest performers in the region, both locals and internationals, are the ones that are committed for the long run. Hello and welcome to Brazil is not for beginners. Today, my guest is Gustavo Camargo. Gustavo is a partner at Bain Brazil and is the head of their investor practice. Gustavo was my boss when I first came to Brazil in 2013. Uh, we did a fun project together. Gustavo, thanks so much for coming on and talking to me. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Zach. It's a pleasure being here. It's a, a nice to see interest from people to better understand what is doing business in Brazil. And it's nice to have people like you creating this, this type of channel. So I thank you. Awesome. Full disclosure, in addition to being my former boss, Gustavo is an investor in my company and an advisor. Uh, we're really lucky to have him on board and again, really appreciate him being here with us. Gustavo, as I mentioned, you're a partner with Bain here in Brazil. Could you tell us a little bit about your background, your trajectory, what got you interested in consulting and specifically the investor practice? Sure. So I, I joined Bain in 2005. Uh, before that, I studied the business economics. And while doing the uh, doing my undergrads, I transferred for a while to US in Austin, the UT. And I think there I started to have contact with uh, some broader curriculum on development. My key area of concern, the area I was to start to do research, was a development and how not only countries, but uh, regions, cities, neighborhoods, how some areas develop more than others, and uh, specifically the role of private companies. What I learned in that process and what was important coming from an underdeveloped country is that local entrepreneurship was one of the roots of development in the local level. So when you have uh, people in a poor area, when they, people get organized, to create small shops, small companies to provide goods and services. Not only you generate income for that group, but you generate economic momentum for the location. So that's something I started working there. After that, I, uh, when I returned to Brazil in 2003 or four, before joining Bain, I started working in one company, a medium-sized company that was funded by Endeavor. They were accelerating a lot, changing the business model. And I was hired to support developing the finance area of the company as it was going very fast. So it was like a concrete example of how accelerating the growth of a mid-sized company, not only you create a lot of jobs inside that company, but you create economic momentum in the whole supply chain. Working in that company, I got in contact with some partners of consultings. And I joined Bain, so in the second half of 2005 as a part-time to try to learn a bit about it. I thought two, maybe three years of working in a big uh, multinational would bring me interesting, valuable toolkit. I still believe another two or three years of uh, work in a big multinational will enhance my toolkit. And the, the reality is that the opportunities, the impact the joy with the colleagues and etc. kept me excited over this 16, 17 years. But it was, uh, I think, on top of uh, being a consultant, it was a lot of like, business building because from in this past 17 years, Bain moved from 60 people to 750 consulting team from one office in Sao Paulo to 
São Paulo, Rio, Santiago, Buenos Aires, Bogotá, Lima, if I didn't miss anything. And uh, sometime in my early years at Bain, I transferred to Boston. And while there, I started working with uh, financial investments. I focused 100% on financial investors. That was 2009, through the back end of the GFC, the Great Financial Crisis. And it, at that moment, with a big uh, recession and drop in valuations, maybe similar to what we are seeing today in the global markets, uh, there was a lot of very interesting investment theses around looking for super strong companies that had IPO'd, that had very high potential businesses, but were dumped by investors, dumped by the, the public market. So at that year, 2009, in the first half of 2010, we worked with a lot of like tech-focused uh, PE and growth investors in identifying some of these businesses, doing a rigorous diligence on those businesses, buying them out in the public market, closing the capital, restructuring a way to accelerate the growth. And most of those, those targets were IPO'd again, were like sold again five or, t- or, or seven years after that with huge growth. So it was a lot about doing the analysis to check that uh, thesis, but being able to see what happened over the, the last 10 years and the value that is created in the private markets where management teams have time to really do major transformations. It's, it's very hard to do major transformation in a public company when you need to go to the market every three months and explain what's happening to people that doesn't spend more than five minutes a quarter to hear you. So being able to see some of that big transformations that are happening uh, with uh, investors in, in the private markets was uh, an amazing school. And then I returned to Brazil maybe 2011-ish. And that's when we started doing, the, as, as consultants, to work with financial investors here. If uh, we look in, uh, back in time, this was the later part of the boom in the Lula years. The uh, big growth in Brazil. Brazil had the boom of the C-class, the B-class, uh, a huge increase in, in public spending and some public uh, programs that uh, lifted a lot of people out of poverty and, and created a, a boosted the middle class. And uh, as a consequence of that boosted middle class, like retail, financial services, education, healthcare, lots of segments had opportunities. And uh, back in 2011, 12-ish, uh, a lot of the big, uh, well-known financial investors were starting or accelerating their businesses in Brazil. So most of the well-known PE brands either had the local operation or started the local operation or had partnerships with one of the key local players. And uh, I returned to Brazil and was part of the team who worked with financial investors with uh, this emerging market perspective, which is very different than doing the same uh, type of uh, diligence, assessment, uh, transformation program, value creation planning, all of the elements are relatively similar, but with a very different flavor, if I may, uh, and a, a big component of tropicalization. Almost all of the theses are around uh, growth and accelerating growth, uh, about uh, finding big pockets of demographic versus well-defined segments. 
uh, about uh, identifying sectors that doesn't need a lot of cash in the operations because every three to five years, that is a crazy uh, roller coaster on interest rates in Brazil. So if you are too exposed to that, it hurts disproportionately your investment thesis. So we developed that uh, expertise uh, and I have been running this, this business inside Bain for the past 10, 15 years. That's really interesting and I appreciate all the background that you shared. There was a lot that you said that resonated with me. I don't know if I ever shared that I also started my studies in international development economics and started my career at the World Bank. So have a similar interest in, in impact and the role of private companies, which I think you know based on your investment in Teddy. But I didn't realize that that was also your, your area of study. So another, another thing we have in common. But there was a lot that you touched on there in terms of the roller coaster of Brazil, in terms of tropicalizing some of the private equity or investor playbook that I think it's worth going into. And so if I understand, broadly speaking, your practice revolves around two types of projects, and, and feel free to correct me here, because I'm sure I'm simplifying tremendously. But generally, you're either working with an investor on understanding an investment opportunity, so doing due diligence or some sort of market mapping or some sort of pre-investment analysis. And then afterwards, you're doing post-investment strategy where you're working on those growth strategies. And in, in both cases, I know that you're working with a mix of local investors and foreign companies. The project we did together was with a sovereign wealth fund that was coming to Brazil at the time. But I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about specifically the perspective of the foreign firms and some of the common misconceptions that they have about Brazil. What are some of the things that you have to explain to them, similar to what you talked about with that interest rate roller coaster? You're totally correct. I think, uh, I want to say 50-50, but, but there is a, a lot of projects that are answering the question of, uh, should I make this investment? Depends a lot on the stage of the company and the market. When you are assessing an investment that is very early stage, the questions around fundamentals of the demand, of the need, of the market to be served, are more important than the target itself. So the work pre-acquisition, pre-investment, will be more around identifying the market, confirming the need, confirming that uh, this is something that can be addressed, solved, that it's a growing problem. If it's a more established market or company, then it's around double-clicking the target itself and confirming that that target is positioned to maintain and expand their, their position in a market that already exists. But earlier stage investments, they are early in the life cycle of that company, but also in the early in the life cycle of that market. So very often the market doesn't exist. The question is, what's the magnitude of the problem? How much lift and value is created by solving it? And then post-acquisition is different. It's depending on the investment thesis. The investment thesis itself includes a lot of transformation. So sometimes the investor needs support to support the, the management in executing that transformation. So that's a lot of what we do. Uh, and very often, after some three, five years of investment, that investment thesis, that uh, initial plan is already executed. But then your question is, okay, what now? Should I exit? And it's kind of funny because it happens in the, in the two situations. Either it's doing really well and you say, oh my God, I don't want to divest. So I need another plan because I want to continue to be the sponsor of this team and company. So I, I want to think about a new strategy to continue here. 
or I will IPO or I will sell to someone else. Or the company is not doing what you expected. And you have the question around, okay, so do I pivot? Do I double down? Do I, if I had the plan and, and the plan is not uh, coming the way I thought, do I replan? How do I replan? Or my plan worked so well that now I want to know if I have another plan or if I have an exit. That's the, it's kind of funny because the, the two things happen on equal frequencies. And that let me now take the, the, the pre-acquisition, the post-acquisition elements and differentiate local investors versus uh, international investors. So first is, I think I will be the 10th people to say Brazil is not for amateurs, but I don't think any country and any investors for amateurs. So I don't think that specific part is, is uh, specific to Brazil, but I think Brazil is specific in its own way. And uh, what I learned uh, working with uh, investors from different sectors, it's not that internationals are too different than locals. It's how do you think about your role and your involvement in that market? There are very successful international investors in the, in the country that have been investors not for one vintage, but over the long run. And if you are investor, if you're investing over the long run, a lot of the risks I will call out will even out across your tenures. So, for example, one of the big nightmares for anyone that uh, do benchmarks in US dollars is that the returns fluctuates a lot with the currency. And if you look into small periods of, of time, the currency fluctuation, the, the exchange rate, explains more of the, the performance of the investment than the EBITDA generation of the company itself. But that's because you're looking into the wrong time scale. You're taking a too short time scale. If you look across ventures, uh, vintages, that uh, movement up and down of the, the FX evens out and you are left with much more signal than noise. And so the strongest performers in the region, both locals and internationals, because we also saw some locals entering and exiting, uh, the strong performers ones are the ones that are committed for the long run. So they will not deploy capital and exit at the same pace every year, but they are always looking for deployment and exits. So the crazy changes in exchange rate might impact positively and negatively one or two investments in one or two vintages, but across you are left with like real performance of the, the actual alpha of the companies you acquired versus the noisy that comes with the uh, uh, macroeconomic. So not internationals versus locals, but uh, the longer time commitment. Because for those that takes a two, one or two few selected investments, you need to be, so your hypothesis is that you know in what point of the cycle you are investing. So you will benefit from the cycle. And the cycle is amazing looking back. You can prove and explain everything when you look into the rear mirror. But people are 50% right and 50% wrong when they talk about the present and the future, trying to guess in what part of the cycle you are in. So that's, that's a thing. So taking a commitment in the long run is probably the single variable that separates successful versus unsuccessful international investors in the region. There are a lot of very smart people and great ideas in the cemetery of uh, investors in, in, in Brazil. Lots of companies that entered in 2008, 9, during, during the boom years, and exited in 2014, 15, and just lost money. 
and 80% of the loss is experienced by interest rate and uh, an exchange rate. But that was, they, they were just exposed to the wrong part of the cycle. They didn't know that up front. No one knows up front. That's, that's, that's the, the wrong way to be opportunistic. The most successful way to be opportunistic is to understand that you are being opportunistic, but you are exposed in the cycle. So you accumulate learning, you accumulate relationship, and you hedge some of these variables that are impossible to guess how they will perform on a forward-looking uh, way. The second thing is uh, several international investors, the, the way they, they look into, it's not specific to Brazil, that's typically how some investors do uh, emerging markets, differs that investors that have a local pocket versus investors that have a global pocket. What do I mean? Imagine two GPs, two investors. They're both international, so they're not headquartered in Brazil. They're not doing fundraising here. They're not reporting results here. But one have a fund that's earmarked to Brazil or Latin. The other one have a fund that is like global fund for, for everything. The fund that is earmarked for the region will need to do the investments in the region. So in the moments in the cycle where it's harder to justify or to find high projected returns in the cycle, they will not make investments and they will maintain their dry powder. Whereas the, the, the GPs that have a global uh, fund, they will make the investment somewhere else. So the big difference here is what's the size of the LATAM or the Brazil stake in the fund? Is it fixed and the pace of deployment changes? Or is it not fixed? So depending on the year, you might put more money in China, more money in India, more, more, more money in Brazil. But the relative, relative share of Brazil in the fund will change. There are great examples and poor examples in, in both models. But my sense is that when you have funds that are earmarked to the region, the GPs ends up being a little bit more disciplined in uh, maintaining relationship over, over time with entrepreneurs. And maybe they will pass a round or they will pass a window, but they maintain the relationship because they know they have uh, resources that are here marketed to that region. So they might do that in, a, in another moment. And I think over the vintages or over the time, this yields a better return to the fund uh, globally. I, I understand the flip side of that is that the fund will accelerate and decelerate the pace of, of investing. And that probably creates other problems for them or other challenges for them. But that's a big difference. And that's on the investing side. And, and comparing to those that are in Brazil, frankly, even if the GP is local, the LP is never local. So the LP is a global market. So that explains more of the difference in behavior than the fact of being local or, or international. And uh, I think the local investors, they have the advantage or maybe the, the characteristics that the LP already decided to be exposed to Brazil risk because he's investing in a Brazil fund, right? Or in the LATAM and Brazil fund of a local or an international investor. So there is not this question around, oh, am I comfortable being exposed to this uh, political environment? This question is not relevant. That makes a lot of sense. I think that the points there, and you've kind of touched on it a few different ways, of the long-term commitment to Brazil. Brazil is very relationship-based, building those relationships with people. 
even if you're not investing all the time, but continuing to be present is a big thing. I think we, we saw this in the most recent cycle where, again, we had a lot of tourists, but you're starting to see more people focus on Brazil. That's a really great point, and I just wanted to double down on it. No, that's perfect. And on the exit side, it's the same thing, right? If you are committed for the long run, you are not looking for the perfect moment for the interest rate or for the exchange rate or for the global markets, whatever. You are looking for the right exit moment considering the life cycle of that company you invested in. So at what time does that company benefit from a corporate sponsor and you are going to sell to a strategic? In what moment that company benefits from going to the public market and IPOing? And then you make that decision based on that, on what's the, the ideal exit for the company. And I think uh, maybe not on a per investment basis, but across the vintages, you will make better exits because you're making the right decision for the right reason and, and not depending on, on, on lucky and your timing. So for example, a, a company that's already mature and should be exited, but you don't want to sell because of the current situation in the exchange rate, you are hurting the growth of that company because of your position as an investor. That's the type of mistake. I'm saying that, that uh, an international investor that is being too opportunistic might end up doing. That makes a lot of sense. You talked about there of that long-term vision, also being specific to the company and understanding where you are. And having that long-term perspective allows you to let things even out over time. Going a little bit deeper here, when I first approached you with this podcast idea and told you what it was and what we were going to talk about, you actually laughed. You said, I completely get it. I've dealt with this before. Is there anything that you can tell us in terms of a story, good stories and bad stories where you've seen people come into Brazil and be able to succeed, maybe despite themselves, succeed because they, they understood something or run into problems because they didn't understand the local bureaucracy or how companies work? So I'm wondering if there's anything behind that laugh that you can share with us. Brazil, more often, is on the international news for bad things than from good things, excluding sports, right? It's more common to see Brazil in the international media because a crazy president is trying a coup d'etat than because, oh my God, this is a great fiscal policy that uh, uh, helped us reduce inflation faster than the rest of the world. Even though I just described the two things that are real. There was a crazy president trying to do a coup. And uh, it was probably one of the fastest or earliest country to, to deal with the inflation created by the, the fiscal stimulus in the COVID crisis. So very often we have these uh, conversations and, and they are spiked by whatever is crispier on the news. To, to quote a classic of literature, all happy families are similar, but uh, the sad families are sad in their specific ways. Successful stories, they have a bedrock of mid to long term commitment. And I can think about success stories from investors that they are just wanting to make money, but also with a big conglomerates that decide that you enter it. If you just take a step back and try to see what is Brazil before you ask the question of, do I want to enter there? It's a relatively big economy, something around 200 million inhabitants, 50 million families. It's not a poor country on average. It's not a rich country on average as well, but it's very unequal. And this inequality creates much more situations and or opportunities than, than uh, most people think. But just to put that in perspective, what does it mean? And when you add the social class distribution, etc., Brazil, A and B class, only the A, A and B class is roughly the size of Canada. So imagine the whole country of Canada, the A and B classes, on average, the income per capita is equivalent to the average income per capita of Canada, 
and the number of families and, and individuals is the size of Canada. So inside Brazil, there is one full Canada plus class C, D, and E. So depending on what you are doing, you look into Brazil and you, you should think about Canada. So if you're selling very expensive, fancy yogurt, looking to Brazil is selling yogurt to Canada. If you're thinking about, oh my God, I'm doing something in out-of-the-pocket healthcare, out-of-the-pocket education, consumer goods to wealthy individuals or to relatively wealthy individuals. That's a market as, as big as Canada, which is not small, but again, it's not India, right? But depending on what you're doing, you are serving 50 million families. If you are creating services and products for middle class, you had 100 million people somewhere that we can call middle class for most financial services products, for most, uh, depending on what you're doing, retail products, e-commerce, technology, everything that is behind the, the wheels, so serving other companies, you're serving a market of 200 million people. Given this, this, this magnitude, any relevant, any big company in consumer goods, it can be in food, it can be in technology, it can be in appliances, etc. that considers themselves as a global company, either they have a Brazil business or they have a Brazil entry strategy somewhere in their strategic priorities. The success stories are the ones that understand what they're doing and, and, and acknowledge that, okay, I want to be exposed to Brazil. And the success stories are the ones that identify those needs and those opportunities and monitor and execute it over time, committed to creating a business in the long term, both as an investor as well as a corporation that, uh, that's exposed to the region. And, and the flip side is the opposite, to say, hey, oh, are the companies that, when the country is growing very fast, say, oh my God, it's too hot in the news, I need to be exposed there, and then I will acquire someone or, or create organic. But if you make the right decision to be exposed to the market, but with the wrong rationale, looking into result, for results in the short run, the first crisis, the first moment of drop, you will probably revisit your decision and exit. And I think that's the failure stories, I, I say. The, each one of them is very specific. Said families are, are set in their, their own way. But uh, with this bedrock of we're looking for opportunistic ways of capturing this uh, fast-growing market, this fast-growing country, this fast-growing segment of the population. This, uh... Yeah, I think we see it in the, specifically in the recent cycle that we just went through, especially in VC. Exactly, yeah. Technology is a great example, right? If there was uh, nothing on technology for 20 years, and then in five years, when you double-click and try to, cut, to separate success stories of companies created in this last five years, there is a lot of very interesting stuff out there. They are solving real problems of big uh, demographics of individuals or companies and with a, a long-run perspective. The sad stories are copycat of something from somewhere. Let me be the whatever of Brazil. You don't see a lot of those. Maybe one or a few were sold in the right moment, maybe by lucky, maybe by competence. I don't care. But it's not strong stories of businesses, right? If there are strong stories of, some good stories of investments, but not strong stories of businesses. The strong stories of businesses are, they are rooted in real needs and a commitment for the medium term at least. Yeah, that's something we've talked about, and I want to get to that in one second. 
We've talked a lot about the investor side, but I think for local companies, sometimes it can be sexy to say, I have an international investor. I have the investor from Europe or from the US or Japan. What do you advise local companies when they're considering investment from abroad as opposed to from somebody's here? What are some of the mistakes they make or, or what are things that they should keep in mind when thinking about having an international partner and these international investors coming in and being partners with them? First of all, everyone in the, in the ecosystem should think about investment as a relationship that goes beyond the funding. I'm not even saying beyond the money, beyond the funding, because there is a lot of passive investment and that's great. And there's nothing wrong with that. I just think that for the investor, they should look or we should look sometimes I'm in that position. We should look for not companies, but thesis where we believe the thesis is correct for the right reasons. And what the investor can add to the table is money in the short term, money when the company needs. That's why I'm saying funding more than, than just one round. And also, what else can you bring to the table other than your money? And, and, and let me break that in parts. So first is the thesis must be correct. You must believe in the thesis. What I mean by that is if you are committed, you should not be committed to buying something today to selling whatever, one, two, one, three, five years, doesn't matter, because the price will be higher. But because whatever that company is doing is creating much more value than it will capture. And that's why I say that you, you need to believe in the thesis. If a company is serving a specific market, your thesis needs to explain why is that important and why solving that or addressing that creates much more value than you are, than you are capturing. Then my second part is the thesis needs to be right for the right reasons. Is that it's not about creating value because someone is paying, but what is the rationale for that? How sustainable is that in different uh, regulatory environments? Are you betting on a current scenario that is stupid? Are you just saying, no, I, I'm underwriting this because the current regulation creates this problem, so I'm solving this problem, that's a, a right thesis, but this is for the right reason, because you are counting on something wrong continuing. You are counting on the incompetence of your competitor. You are counting on the market not developing. You are counting on uh, the barriers from international companies to continue. So every time your thesis depends on stuff that are not correct, I think it's just not only too risky, but it's a stupid risk because assuming you don't know when, other people will be solving that problem. And your thesis not only is, needs to be correct, but if it's correct for the wrong reasons, you depend on the incompetence of others solving that problem. I think regulation is a, is a very important one. And I remember, again, without disclosing too much details, but I remember working with healthcare in Brazil 15 years ago. There was a big constraint on international investors in healthcare, right? So building a business that depended on that constraint would make sense and would probably have been profitable for some years. But after some years, that, that constraint was lifted. And uh, either you were right for the right way, for the right reasons, you would create scale, you would create value, you would reduce costs, you would be more efficient, you would be more competent, better quality, better brand, whatever. Or if you just depended on that artificial barrier, it could be the right thesis, but for the wrong reason, too, too risky, too stupid. The last element is like you should, as an investor, think of what else can you bring to the table. So even if you're passive, 
you should consider the investment as, I'm not investing in that round, I'm investing in that thesis. So that thesis might require funding across gates and cycles. It may be staged investing, like in stages, but even the deployment of money should be thought about uh, uh, on the need for that company, for that business, and not for that round specifically. And I think investors should try to always challenge themselves uh, why their money is better than anyone else's. You don't want to be a commodity. So do you have uh, additional expertise? Have you done that in other regions that allows you to make good questions? Can you be a, an accretive member? You don't need to be a board member, but can you be an accretive challenger to the management? Can you be an accretive member of the, the community of the company so you make, you make introductions? So what else can you bring to the table so you are not just uh, another dollar that is equal to everyone else's dollar? What can you differentiate? And I think the companies, obviously, they need financial resources as funding, but they also benefit a lot from governance. They benefit a lot from access to talent. They benefit a lot from access to networking, relationship, and, and, and all of that, that investors should be able to provide, even though they are minority, whatever. That's my belief. And, and as a company receiving the money, it's even more important. This next million dollars of funds in you are bringing, is it accretive not only to your cash position, but to your relationship uh, holodex? Is it accretive to your governance? Do they bring experience having done something similar to one of your challenges? So you have an extra phone to call, an extra person to call and ask, oh my God, I'm struggling with this. What do you think? Or is it just another person for you to spend one hour per quarter trying to explain what happened? Because that extra hour is also very valuable. You shouldn't waste one hour explaining something to an investor that is not adding anything. And, and you will need to explain probably even more if, if things are not going, going, going as expected. That's really great insight. And we've had these conversations privately as well about accretive value. And, and obviously, we love having you as an advisor and as an investor with Teddy. And I think that's really great advice to companies thinking about having somebody that, that is committed to the region, committed to the thesis, somebody that's thinking about not just their dollar impact, but the multiplier effect of them as a partner. Coming in, knowing somebody can potentially invest again or help you as you, you think about those future investments, that access to talent, especially if you're in a growth stage, bringing on professionalization. I think that's all really, really interesting and tied into what I was going to ask you about your investment thesis as an angel uh, as well. And so really helpful there. I want to change gears here just at the end. And I want to ask you, you know, you mentioned earlier on the, the expression, Brazil is not for beginners. As a foreigner, anytime I sit in a meeting with accountants or lawyers, somebody always says that to me. So what does that mean to you when you hear it or potentially when you say it to people coming in? So I think uh, whatever you're coming from, you have embedded in your soul the way of work of that location. So anything that is different will sound either wrong or incomplete or, or you just don't will, will not understand. My best uh, suggestion for myself when I feel myself in this situation is say, okay, what am I not understanding so that the reality makes sense? I am not making sense of the reality because I miss something. I, I'm missing context. I'm missing history. So when I say Brazil is not for beginners, that's when you are a beginner, things will not make sense. 
because you don't have that context, you don't have that history, you, you don't understand, you don't read between the lines. How do you learn to do all those things? Spending more time. So the more we talk, we will return to the question, to that point around commitment for the long run. Some elements are easier to call out. For example, it's not unique to Brazil, it's, it's very Latin. For example, the way people talk about, uh, more often people you interact with in Brazil and in other Latin cultures will avoid disagreeing with you, especially if you are in person. So let's say you are talking about a deadline and they say, okay, can you do this, that by Monday? More likely, if someone doesn't believe they will be able to meet the deadline in Sao Paulo, for example, or in Rio, they would say, oh, we'll give it a try. They would not say no. They would avoid the no because the no sounds rude and aggressive. They would say, oh, we'll give it a try. Someone from a, an, an Anglo-Saxon culture might hear that as it's possible or it's likely. He didn't say no, so he will do it. And so the problem is as much about the individual not saying no as the person listening and guessing that not saying no is a yes, right? What's missing there is, is not the communication, is the context to understand that you should make a follow-up question. It's okay, you will try, but if you don't get it by Monday, what do you think is, uh, is the feasible deadline for that? Or when can I talk to you and confirm the date? Because if you already know the person on the other side, especially when there is high hierarchy, especially when there is uh, people are not very familiar with one another, this uh, avoidance of being of, of saying no because it might sound rude, that is very keen to the Latin culture, will create this, this that miscommunication. Just want to make that a broader uh, a broader component that Brazil is not for beginners because beginners don't get the context on Brazil, on India, on China, on Japan, or on the Nordics. So how do you get there? You spend more time, you commit, you visit multiple times, you ask and re-ask, you phrase and rephrase, so that you develop your skill of reading between the lines is more efficient than trying to have a cheat sheet of what exactly every expression means. And that requires more time that requires commitment to the long run. And uh, the difficult thing is that commitment with the long run takes uh, time to develop, so. No, this is, this is great. And there's definitely, you know, you've been doing this for 20 years, working with investors coming into Brazil and with local companies. And obviously you've seen different cycles and seen how people have won and have lost and who's been doing this well. And so that idea of commitment is really strong and, Part of the idea of this podcast is for those beginners or, or those experts, frankly, I think you can always learn. And it's about keeping that mindset, like you said, of always asking and rephrasing. And so just as a final question, and I think you touched on some of this, are there any expressions or habits in Brazil that you think uh, are, are really unique or uh, things that, that people should be aware of when they come? I, I can give the example. This weekend, we had an event at my son's school. My son is two years old. My wife is 39 weeks pregnant. And uh, we find that, you know, one of the things that stands out for foreigners is how much Brazilians love babies. And babies, and frankly, pregnant women's stomachs don't belong to them as much as they belong to the community. And so we're at school and all of the professors are touching my wife's belly and talking about when it is, when is it coming and what is it going to be? 
And that's something you'd never see in the U.S. Yeah, this this example with the pregnant women is, is an extreme, but I think uh, everything around like physical contact is probably something foreigners should expect. Like uh, we you just met with someone you've never seen, and then when you're saying bye, they will hug you. I that's that's normal. Or next time you see, they will kiss you on the cheek to say hi. Uh, you might see something similar to that in Italy. France, Spain, in the, in the Mediterranean as well, but definitely not my experience in the northeast of US, for example. And, and that's a, uh, like touching and this uh, sense of uh, belonging very fast uh, is, also happens in, in other settings, not only the touching, but where, for example, you are in a, you just met people for dinner and, uh, and you are about to leave and they, they will say, oh, let's have another drink and let's have another drink and let's, uh, and as if they were your friends for 20 years, the, the flip side of that is that they will not get bad if you don't follow through, if you don't agree. Well, Gustavo, thank you so much for joining me. This was a lot of fun. I learned a lot. I always learn a lot talking to you. So this was really great. If people want to reach out to you, they can find you on LinkedIn, right? Is that maybe the best way for people that are interested in connecting? Yeah, yeah. In the Google age, uh, just Gustavo Camargo, Gustavo Camargo, People will find it on, on the obvious channels. That's it. Wonderful. Thanks so much for joining me. It was great having you on. Thank you. Bye-bye. And uh, good luck in the final days before your kid. Thank you. Yeah, we're on Baby Watch. So by the time this gets published, I'll have a second one. So thanks so much. Thanks again for joining us. This podcast was hosted by me, Isaac Matzner. It was produced by Amanda Villela and edited by Veronica Medina. You can find more episodes on Spotify and Apple Podcasts, as well as on our Substack page. We love feedback, so please feel free to reach out to us on social media or via email at brazil, the number four, beginners at gmail.com.